Mexic Clinical Pearls. Hello everyone, welcome back to Mexic Clinical Pearls, where we talk through conditions, approaches, and clinical situations commonly seen in ED and critical care that we think are important for medical students to know about. We hope you are well in this stressful time for all of us. My name is Michael and I'm a final year student. And I'm Jack, a 4C student. In last week's podcast, we started talking about respiratory failure. We took you through the case of a 68-year-old man recently returned from the US with a three-day history of fever, shortness of breath, and cough. His nasopharyngeal swab came back positive for SARS-CoV-2 virus, also known as COVID-19. And whilst he was an ED, he became lethargic, tachypneic, diaphoretic, and desaturated to 80%. This man is in respiratory failure. And in this episode of the podcast, we're going to go through the workup on a patient with respiratory failure and an approach to management. Okay, so we've talked extensively about what respiratory failure is and some things you may notice in a patient. But what are we going to do if this is our patient? The patient is desaturating before our eyes and they have an increased work of breathing. Well, as with any critical care scenario, the first thing you want to perform is a primary assessment of the patient, including assessment and stabilisation of the airway breathing, and circulation. Essentially, do your ABCs. Clip on an oximeter and take a basic set of vitals. Give supplemental oxygen to patients with saturation less than 90% and establish intravenous access. Also, get an arterial blood gas as soon as possible. Blood gas analysis will allow you to determine the type of respiratory failure the patient is experiencing and the potential cause too. We prefer an arterial blood gas over a venous blood gas as we want an accurate measure of the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood. All of these measures can pretty much be done without having a full conversation with the patient. But when you do get a chance to talk to the patient or their relatives, you should obtain a targeted history. Some things you might inquire about include past history of lung disease, smoking, drug history, recent trauma, travel, sleep apnea, neuromuscular disorders, neurological symptoms, if on home oxygen, then inquire about the changes to flow settings as well. Once the patient becomes stable, you can take a more detailed history. Now, we perform an examination. First, assessing for respiratory distress, which includes looking for accessory muscle use, observing their breathing pattern, and any signs of paradoxical respirations. You may also assess their fluid status and examine their thoracic cage and listen to their heart and lungs. Other examinations to consider include an abdominal or neurological exam. Depending on your clinical judgment, you may order a chest x-ray, do a bedside pulmonary ultrasound, or even do a CTPA or VQ scan, if there is a high suspicion of a PE. Chest x-ray may reveal lung infiltrates, which is important to rule out pneumonia, ARDS, or other forms of pulmonary edema. You may also see a pneumothorax or a pleural effusion, which will need to be drained. Doing a chest CT or CTPA may not be possible depending on the patient's clinical situation, but can still be considered if appropriate. Bedside pulmonary ultrasound is interesting and something you don't really see on the ward, but it is used increasingly in ED and critical care. You may see pulmonary edema, areas of infarction from PEs, pleural effusions, pneumothoraces, or pneumonia. While you're there, you can also observe cardiac function to assist diagnosis. Some other investigations you would typically do include an ECG, FBE, UEC, and CMP. As we explained before, you will want to rule out any arrhythmias that may be seen in severe hypoxia and acidosis, 
or any cardiogenic cause of respiratory failure. Echocardiograms are sometimes also useful. We mentioned before that we would want to do an ABG early because it gives us a lot of information about the level of hypoxemia and hypercapnia and any acid-base abnormalities. Chronic hypercapnia often has a near-normal pH if compensated sufficiently. You may also determine an acute on-chronic hypercapnia if the blood gas analysis shows a mix of acute and chronic pictures with a more neutral but still acidotic pH, as would be the case in an acute exacerbation of COPD. You will also want to check serum biochemical levels, including assessment of firstly bicarbonate, to reveal any chronic underlying hypercapnia, although this will often be revealed in the initial ABG, and secondly, electrolyte disturbances, including low phosphate and magnesium or high calcium, although these rarely cause hypercapnia. An FBE may reveal polycythemia, which may be associated with chronic hypoxia. Pulmonary function tests will allow you to determine the tidal volume vital capacity, peak expiratory flow rate, and forced expiratory volume. This isn't really suitable in the acute setting, but might be helpful long-term to determine an underlying cause. You may also want to consider doing toxicology for suspected overdose, thyroid function tests for suspected hypothyroidism, or creatine kinase, which may reveal any muscular disorders. Now that we've worked up our patient and determined the likely cause of their respiratory failure, we need to manage them. Michael is now going to take us through an approach to management of respiratory failure. It is important to understand the basic principles underlying the management of respiratory failure because it is a commonly encountered problem in critical care and one where definitive management is required to avoid serious complications or death. The approach to management of respiratory failure is generally similar for both type 1 and type 2 respiratory failure and follows a rough format which we'll take you through now keeping in mind that a lot of the following steps may be conducted simultaneously in an emergency situation. The first priority is to ensure that the patient's oxygen saturations are at a level compatible with survival, as mentioned before by Jack. This is achieved by delivering high-flow oxygen through an appropriate device. We want to aim for saturations greater than 80% to avoid brain damage, but ideally above 90%. Just a further comment about oxygen saturations is to keep in mind that in certain conditions such as COPD, where there is a potential for patients to be chronic CO2 retainers, that high-flow oxygen can sometimes depress respiratory drive. While this is a valid concern in a general ward setting, the hazards of reducing hypoxic drive are less important in critically unwell patients. Remember, severe hypoxemia is more dangerous than hypercapnia. Once the patient's oxygen saturations have been taken care of, attention should be turned to any causes of the respiratory failure that could be rectified. Examples include drainage of a pneumo or hemothorax, antibiotics for infection, diuretics for pulmonary edema, or naloxone for opioid overdose. The final stage of respiratory failure management is appropriate respiratory support. This goes beyond our usual ways of providing supplemental oxygen, like nasal cannulae or Hudson masks. This is where we actually start to help the patient with their breaths. This can be achieved either through non-invasive or invasive ventilation. We'll start with non-invasive ventilation. Non-invasive ventilation is mainly comprised of either CPAP or BiPAP, which are both therapies which provide support for the patient's airway through air pressure. CPAP 
or continuous positive airway pressure provides a continuous high pressure airflow delivered through either nasal prongs or a special mask fitted to the patient's face that splints open the airways during inspiration and expiration. This helps push oxygenated air into the patient's lungs and can help to reduce respiratory effort and fatigue. However, it is generally only appropriate for patients with an intact respiratory drive as they still need to be able to breathe on their own. In fact, it can even make it harder for the patient to breathe out properly. BiPAP, or bi-level positive airway pressure, works on the same principles as CPAP. However, it has slightly different pressures for the inspiratory and expiratory phases. It can be useful for certain patient groups, such as those with COPD, and especially for those with pulmonary edema. If you can imagine the alveoli are filled with fluid, and you want to give positive pressure to open this up. Otherwise, no matter how much oxygen you give them, it won't actually get to the oxygen exchange level. Whilst CPAP and BiPAP can be very effective respiratory therapies, for those patients who are critically unwell, they usually require invasive ventilation. This is when patients are connected to a mechanical ventilator that takes over the task of breathing for them. This can be delivered by an endotracheal tube, which is a tube that sits within the trachea below the level of the vocal cords, a laryngeal mask airway, which is an elliptical-shaped mask that forms an airtight seal on top of the glottis, or a tracheostomy, which is a surgical airway created at the base of the neck that allows a tube to be passed directly through the neck into the trachea. The benefits of mechanically ventilating a patient include relief from exhaustion, improved oxygenation, improved carbon dioxide elimination, and greater control over method of ventilation. So Michael, what would make a patient appropriate for mechanical ventilation? Will any signs of respiratory distress qualify a patient? This includes a respiratory rate above 40, an inability to speak or patient exhaustion, confusion, restlessness, decreased consciousness, rising CO2 level, or extreme hypoxemia. Additionally, those patients that are in acute ventilatory failure, meaning they don't have the necessary respiratory drive, also require mechanical ventilation. We've already mentioned this, but examples of such contributing conditions include myasthenia gravis or Guillain-Barre syndrome, or any other condition that results in the vital capacity falling to less than 10 mil per kilogram. Once a patient is successfully connected to a ventilator, There are a number of ways to ventilate the patient based on inspiratory pressures and volumes or the patient's own respiratory drive. However, this is probably out of the scope of this podcast. Perhaps some key principles to understand is that if a patient has type 1 respiratory failure, we want to increase the amount of oxygen getting down into the alveoli. We can do this by increasing FiO2 given, increasing the positive pressure given, and increasing the time the patient spends in inspiration. If a patient has type 2 respiratory failure, we want to help the patient breathe off their carbon dioxide. We do this by increasing their respiratory rate or by increasing their tidal volume. If understanding how a ventilator actually works is something that interests you, consider flicking through a good critical care textbook or ask your friendly neighbourhood anaesthetist or intensivist. Finally, one respiratory therapy we haven't mentioned is ECMO, or extracorporeal membranous oxygenation. This is usually employed in severe refractory respiratory failure, 
and is a highly specialized treatment that involves removing venous blood from the body and pumping it through a membrane lung to oxygenate it and remove carbon dioxide before returning it to the circulation. If we think about our case again, where the patient with COVID-19 quickly desaturated, this is a common presentation that we've been seeing in patients on the severe end of the spectrum. We suspect that these patients go into acute respiratory distress syndrome, but the pathophysiology seems slightly unusual from our typical picture, as we're not too clear at this stage what exactly is going on. In any case, acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, is something that we should know a little bit about as medical students. It describes the process where some sort of lung injury, whether direct or indirect, causes a diffuse lung response where the capillaries around the alveoli become leaky, allowing protein to leak into the interstitial space, which can eventually lead to fibrosis around the alveoli after a week or so. ARDS is also characterised by damage to type 2 pneumocytes in the lungs, which are responsible for surfactant production. These two processes together can cause pulmonary edema, alveolar collapse, and reduction in pulmonary compliance. This, as you can imagine, causes respiratory failure due to ventilation perfusion mismatch. In our case, you, the EDHMO, perform an ABG, which reveals an acute on chronic respiratory alkalosis with a partial pressure of oxygen of 45 millimeters of mercury and a partial pressure of carbon dioxide of 45 millimeters of mercury. Your consultant makes the decision to start mechanical ventilation due to severe hypoxemia and performs a rapid sequence induction and intubation. After a subsequent prolonged course in ICU, the patient is successfully weaned off mechanical ventilation and returns to the COVID ward for ongoing management and monitoring. So this is a little snapshot, albeit very contrived, of what hospitals around the world are trying to deal with now as ventilators are in shortage and the sudden inundation of patients with COVID-19 has meant that our many healthcare systems globally may be unable to keep up. Patients can deteriorate very quickly, and our evidence-based approaches are changing week to week, but the principles remain the same. Initiate careful ongoing monitoring, and keep thinking about escalation or de-escalation of oxygen delivery, based on their cardiorespiratory state. So what can we take home from today's podcast in regards to respiratory failure? One, don't forget to treat the underlying cause of respiratory failure. Two, ARDS is an important cause of type 1 respiratory failure and is characterized by pulmonary edema and fibrosis following an acute lung insult. And three, go through advanced life support ABCs in any patient with suspected respiratory failure and get an early ABG and you won't go wrong. We do hope you learned a lot from this podcast. Leave us a comment so we know how to improve in the future. And if you like this, please share it with your friends. Thank you.